Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. I was just making myself a drink. As long as you're not driving, feel free to do the same. Get comfortable. Take off your shoes, put on some slippers. I did. Settle in, unwind, and lounge with me for the next hour or so. We got stories and songs and movies and recipes, all designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. You know, the way the light and the darkness are always flowing into and out of each other. And what better time of year to address the dance of light and dark than the holidays, when the most wonderful time of the year comes face to face with the dark night of the soul. We're gonna explore the tension between the poet Dylan Thomas and the great Chinese philosopher Confucius. When darkness creeps in, how are we meant to respond? Should we rage, light a candle, or maybe, probably, do a little of both? In our dinner and a movie segment, we'll highlight one of the greatest holiday stories of all time and pair it with a delicious recipe for a dish I bet you've always heard about, but have never made for yourself. Ray Chase and Julia McIlvain will be along shortly to wish us a happy Nola days. Matt Almos will drop by to talk about finding a surprising connection to family at the worst mall in the world. And John Ballinger and Double Batch Daddy are here to regale us with song. So, here we are. It's the middle of December. The sunrise in Los Angeles today is roughly 7 a.m., and the sun sets around 5.30. That's just over 10 hours of daylight. Not a lot of time to soak up the vitamin D. In Nome, Alaska, sunrise is at 9, sunsets at 3. That's a very short day. The bears are hibernating. The trees are barren. The cloudy skies hide the sun from view. It's dark. It's cold. What are you going to do about that, huh? Throw a party. <laughs> what else? One time, in the middle of the darkest night, someone had a crazy idea. I know. Let's bring a tree in from outdoors and decorate it with lights and shiny things. Then, let's go out into the cold, walk around, sing to anyone who'll listen, and then we'll come back, light a big fire, give each other gifts, and eat our brains out. Yeah, it's dark out, so what? Light a candle. In fact, let's light five, or seven, or eight of them at once. We gotta balance this shit out. Fact is, the world literally gives us lemons this time of year. Literally. The trees are full of them. My friends... It's time to squeeze one of those babies into a cup of hot water, add a shot of bourbon, spoonful of honey, and sip that shit while we wait for the bearded fat man with a sprig of holly in his hair to stop by and bestow upon us a gift or two. It's time to party like a new baby's been born. It's time to celebrate victory over oppression. It's time to honor all cultures, to imagine a better future by focusing on family and community. This is the turning point of the year, my friends. It's not getting any darker. On December 22nd, the sun rises a minute earlier, it sets a minute later, and it keeps getting brighter and brighter every day. Count on it. Our long march into darkness is finally over. Let's party. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba Follow me, baby 
Popping corn. Thank you. So, what are we watching? Charlie Brown Christmas. Cool. I love the dance sequence. <laughs> yep. Who's your favorite? Uh, Violet. Oh, yeah, Violet's a cool dancer. Who's yours? Schroeder. Shut up. <laughs> what? Schroeder doesn't dance. You don't know that. True. I bet he's a great dancer. Show me how Schroeder would dance. Uh, okay, like this. You are so weird. What? Schroeder wouldn't raise the roof. Why not? Because it's 1964. Nobody raised the roof for like 35 years. No, 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 no. Schroeder's ahead of his time. You are so weird. Come on. Okay, look, an eight-year-old kid who plays piano like that would totally be ahead of his time. Like uh, like Bowie. Oh, God, whatever. (sighs) Whatever. So, what'd you get me for Christmas? I'm not telling. Why not? It's a surprise. I tell you. Okay. What did you get me? I didn't get you anything yet. What? Which doesn't mean that I won't. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, your turn. What? Your turn to tell. No. I told you. So? Quid pro quo, baby. No. No what? No both. No quid pro quo? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and no, you didn't get me a present. Um, not exactly. No. Mm. Gone holidays. Yeah. The whole marketing machine tells you that the only way to show you love someone is to spend money on them. The more you spend, the more you love. And if you don't have money, then you can't have love? Well, that's just plain wrong. Mm. What if we start our own holiday movement? A what? An anti holiday. With no presents? No debt. No shopping frenzy? All the love with none of the hassle. Totally. We could run a commercial on TV during the Charlie Brown show. (gasps) Check this out. Fade in on Santa's Village, only it's not the cute little town we're used to seeing. No, it's like a huge Ikea-sized factory. We fly in through the front loading bay. We're at the nexus of the Santa operation. There's all these elves as far as the eye can see. And they're busting their humps to try to make the Christmas deadline. And they're miserable. Yeah. Some of them are even trying to figure out how to put a PS5 together. Oh, oh, you got to have a couple of them, like, trying to tie a big bow on top of a Lexus. (laughs) Right. But they can't figure out how to tie a bow that's as big as they (laughs) are. Anyway, it's basically a big old sweatshop. Right. And it's horrible. Everyone's scrambling to make the deadline. I get it. Where's Santa? Where's Santa? He's smoking a pipe and slugging down one last hot chocolate for the road in his executive suite. Ew. He's the big boss, the beneficiary of the labor of the elfin hordes. Wow. So we track him through the factory and slinging all these bogus Christmas phrases at the elves. It's better better to to give than to receive. receive. Right, and he's all ho, ho, ho and stuff. And then he gets into the sleigh. And he flies off into the night. Got a couple of cool shots of the sleigh going across the moon. And he lands the thing on someone's roof. He's all ho, ho, ho. And he pops down the chimney and sees us. We're waiting for him. We're not happy. Well, we're not mad, though. No, but we're not happy either. We are assured of ourselves. Because I, I don't think that being mad at Santa's going to get us anything. I gotcha. Anyway, Santa sees us and goes, ho, ho, ho. And we go, no, no, no. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love it. No, no, no. But not mad, though. No, no, no. Just firm and resolute. No, no, no. And we point him back up the chimney and send him on his way. This is so cool. We tell materialism to go away. Right. And it could be a series of ads with all these different people all telling Santa, no, no, no. Oh, you could show, like, people in stores shopping like mad, and then a person could walk up to them and say, no, 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 really gently. Or just a bunch of credit cards swiping until they finally come up declined. Then no, no, no. Right. Oh, people stranded at airports, families fighting over Christmas dinner, all that stuff. And there's more. No, no, no. No, no, no. And at the end of every ad, the screen would fade to black, and a card that says, Happy Holidays would pop up, but... Then the H in holidays would get all X'd out and be replaced by an N. So it says, Happy Nola Days. Happy Nola Days. Wow. <laughs> I love it. Happy Nola Days, sweetie. Happy Nola Days, love. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
We need an icon. No, no, no. Why not? No, no, no. I was just saying the slogan again. Yes. Yes, we need an icon. A Nola Days icon. Like Santa. Right. Anti-Claus. How about Madonna? What? Madonna. She'd be perfect. How do you figure that? Well, her name, first of all. Madonna. Yeah, like the Virgin Mary, Madonna. I mean, you got the Christmas thing right there. It you think? Yeah, plus she's all into the Kabbalah now, so you get the Jews, too. Oh, you're funny. I know, right? Okay, so she may not have actual religious significance, but she's still a big name. True. Oh, and she's got that song, Holiday. Won't she change it to Nola Day? Well, she'd have to. Nola Day, celebrate. Uh, mm. Oh, it could be so nice <laughs> if I took Nola Day. You can see it. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Wait, uh, you know what the problem with Madonna is? Careful. As a Nola Day icon only. Okay. Okay, if Madonna was a spokesperson for the Nola Days, you couldn't have a tradition because every year she'd want to change the holiday into something else. Ooh, ooh, you're right. <gasps> oh, I got it. Go ahead. No, 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 no. This one's perfect. Tommy. No. You have to get all of the other candidates out of your system. Uh, Go. Okay, okay, okay. James Earl Jones, Ed Asner, Chris mm. Rock, Eminem. Ooh. Think about it. John Stewart. William Shatner. Oh my God. William Shatner. Consistent. Hungry for work. Funny and serious at the same time. Great hair. Same hair. William Shatner. William Shatner. You're a genius. Thank you. Hmm. <laughs> what about the tree? What? Can we keep the tree? Mm, good question. I love the tree. Yeah. She's so pretty. And she smells so nice. Yeah. How'd you feel about a fern? What? An holiday fern. You could still decorate it, and it would live on from season to season. The ferns are so hard to keep alive. That's part of it. You spend all your holiday energy trying to keep the fern alive. The fern becomes the focus. But what if it dies? No holidays? You're a Nola Day failure? You're right. I say we keep the tree. Take back the tree. Okay. But no decorations, just the smell. And some pretty lights. Lights too, huh? Yeah. They're too pretty to lose. They are pretty. Turn off the TV. And the lamp. <sighs> See? Well, that is a pretty tree. You don't really want to give this up, do you? Not really. <laughs> I know what the holidays are for, even if the world has forgotten. You do. I don't need to start a movement. Who needs a hassle? Right. The real holidays are about new beginnings. True. The real holidays are about hope. Hoping the sun will come back. Cause it sure is cold now. They're about love with a big L. And peace with a big P. And family. To family. Um, here. What's this? Nothing. This maybe I had a little black box in the bowl of popping corn. Wait. What for? Will you be my family? Then. No, you said. I said I didn't get you a Christmas present. This, this is a family present. It's for this Christmas and forever. It's so beautiful. Wow. Will you be my family? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, I'm glad you did this. Me too. No, I'm gladder. Why? I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> I, I really didn't think you could top the ring. What can I say? I love you. I love you. Have you thought about names? Well, if it's a girl, Madonna. Mm -hmm. If it's a boy... William Shatner. Yeah. Let's turn back the clock to 2006. There were some very scary movies released that year. Let's see. There was The Hills Have Eyes. Oof. There was also the third installment of the heartwarming Saw franchise. But for me, the scariest film of 2006 was a little Academy Award winner called An Inconvenient Truth. In this film, the weapon of choice was not a chainsaw or a butcher knife, but rather a PowerPoint presentation wielded by former Vice President Al Gore, which shed light on the devastating reality of climate change. 
For the 14 years since then, Mr. Gore and his scientific advisors have been constantly updating that slideshow with the most up-to-date information on the science, on the insane weather events happening all over the world, but also on the positive changes taking place that give reasons for optimism. Is it still scary? You bet. But it's inspiring and hopeful as well. Now, what if I told you that you could get your very own live presentation of this new slideshow by someone personally trained by former Vice President Gore? And what if I told you they could present to your club, church, or community group, or any other gathering you could think of, small or large? What if I told you they could present it over Zoom, and they would do it for free? Well, it's all true. And all you have to do to schedule a presentation is email your request to the Los Angeles chapter of the Climate Reality Project at laclimatereality at gmail.com. Not only will you learn what's happening around the world and right here in L.A., you'll learn what actions you can take that can make the biggest difference in the fight for a sustainable future. Again, that email, laclimatechangereality at gmail.com. And to learn more about all the other wonderful work happening at the L.A. chapter of the Climate Reality Project, visit laclimatereality.org. In our conversation segment today, we're fortunate to have with us Matt Almos. Matt is a writer, director, and a former Disney Imagineer. If you've been to Disneyland in Shanghai, China, much of the entertainment you see there was dreamed up by Matt and his staff. He's also a member of the Los Angeles theater collective, The Burglars of Ham, whose very funny play, Land of the Tigers, has recently been published by StageRights.com, and he's a writer on this show. Matt's here to talk with us about the worst mall in the world, and here's how our conversation unfolded. Talk a little bit about the worst mall in the world. Now, I'm familiar with this mall. I've been there before, but I want you to tell us a little bit about the Empire Center and what makes it the worst and perhaps most dangerous mall in the world. The Empire Center is, it, it is the worst mall in the world for two reasons, I think. One is that, I mean, people say this of, of malls and strip malls, but this is especially true of the Empire Center. It is uniquely devoid of personality and soul. Usually at a mall, you would have a variety. You would have like a big store that is an anchor and then a bunch of little stores like a Hickory Farms or a Hallmark or something like that. The Empire Center is all big stores, giant stores. There's a Walmart, there is a Target, there is a Lowe's Home Improvement. There is a, well, I mean, it's strange when the most like, intimate store there probably is the best buy. The second is that it is a, it's a colossal pain in the ass to shop there. The parking lot is an ocean. Nothing makes sense about how the traffic circulates. You get into traffic jams there in the parking lot uh, commonly. If you don't pay close attention, if you get on the wrong sort of circulating road that you think is gonna take you from the lows to the target, it will instead like shuttle you onto the, the southbound five freeway and you'll find yourself sort of hurtling towards downtown LA. The thing about the Empire Center too, which cracks me up is that they put the food court like a driving distance away from the stores. And in between is just this gargantuan parking lot that's designed to kill you. If not kill you, um, you know. Make you stronger? Make you, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it will make you leave there more frustrated and diminished than you were when you first arrived. So you were at the Empire Center Mall one day picking up a bottle of wine at the BevMo, and you noticed something that was unusual. You know, there are big signs that line the front of the parking lot with the names of the stores and whatnot. And each of these signs has a large graphic representation of an airplane. But I did not think anything of it. And then a couple of years ago, I bought my wife a book for Christmas that is called Lost Burbank. So I was thumbing through this book. Lo and behold, I came across a picture of the Empire Center. And it said the Empire Center was the site of, I think, the main manufacturing plant for the Lockheed Aircraft Company. 
Tell us a little bit about Lockheed and what they built and how many people they employed and what an operation it was uh, and how it fit into making Burbank what it is. What I have learned is that it truly was an industrial anchor, not just for Burbank, but honestly for the whole LA region. I believe the plant opened in 1928 and nine years later, uh, they had 37,000 people working on the site. Two years after that, they went up to 63,000 people. In 1943, the thick of World War II, that plant had 94,000 people working. Can you give me an example of, of someplace else today that's employing a lot of people? Sure. I mean, I know that the largest single site employer in the country today is Walt Disney World. And Walt Disney World currently has about 75,000 employees working on that site. That site is bigger than the island of Manhattan. Today, the developed city of Burbank has a population of 103,000. And you have a relative who worked at Lockheed. Yes. My grandfather worked there. And I always knew my grandpa was a Lockheed guy. I don't think I quite clocked like what he did for Lockheed. And I never clocked where that was physically. Wow, there's a place that's like right under my feet that he like built. <laughs> Unbelievable. We're lucky to have your father with us. Yes. Um, to talk a little bit about what that was like. David Almos, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. My first question, just, David, what are your recollections of your dad? And did you live in Burbank? No, we didn't. We live in Azusa. Remember, he had people coming from Glendora and also from Pomona. Every day, the employment was drawn from all around the area. What kind of commute is that to Burbank every day? It was about an hour commute, and that was pre-freeway. So it was an hour in and an hour back. And then your shift was? Sometimes I worked during the day and sometimes I worked swing shift and then occasionally work what they refer to as graveyard. That place was going 24 hours a day. And what, what was it manufacturing? Area where my dad worked was what was referred to as skunk work. Basically was a paid thief. He would be asked to go and find something and he would find it and bring it back to the skunk works. And that was for, for planes like the U-2 and the SR-71 Blackbird and, you know, things that there weren't a lot made, but very still. That piece of the Lockheed plant was really just a fraction. My dad sent me a map of the area. I mean, it encompassed the Empire Center, it encompassed Bob Hope Airport. I think it's about a 1,200-acre area. During World War II, it was a strategically important place. This could be a target for enemy bombers. At one point, they, in partnership, I think with designers from the neighboring movie studios, they designed a giant tarp that covered, I think, much of that 1200 acre area. And from the air, it made it look like a rural farm area. They had fake houses up there, fake trees to hide this important strategic uh, location. And what, what sort of jobs were available to the up to 90,000 people that worked at the plant? Engineers, certainly engineers. And a lot of the engineers were material engineers. So they were using titanium and material that had not been used before. There was uh, not a lot of computer engineers. There was a lot of digital engineers. But then they had all this, all the support that you might expect. There was a relatively large, I guess they call it first aid, but a hospital there on site for employees. Uh, credit unions, everything you might expect, I, I guess, across the gamut. I also read that at that point of its peak, you know, where there was 94,000 people working on site, apparently 35,000 of those, 94,000 were women. This is one of the places that Rosie the Riveter, um, you know, won the war for us. And these were the kind of jobs that a family of, of five could be supported by. David, how many siblings do you have? I've got one. My, my brother, Dan, who also was employed at Lockheed for uh, two or three years, worked mostly swing ship. But so, yeah, it was, uh, it was our life. And Matt, the sort of jobs that are available today on this site, 
I mean, I'm not an expert, but I read that a Walmart, a single Walmart generally employs like 200 people. I think between the number of stores, I would guess that there are maybe somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 people working on that site. And a lot of the jobs there, I, I would assume, are minimum wage. Something, Keith, real quick that is different yeah. about current employment versus what it was then, I'm going to guess 60% of the employees working there were represented by a union. And how many union jobs are on that site today, would you, would you gather? Not a lot. <laughs> Not a lot. What was the experience of Lockheed beginning to wind down? Firstly, obviously myself, since I only worked there summers, but my dad who worked there from like 1940 till about 1980, it was over maybe a decade that the Lockheed activities there um, blossomed down. I think it was in the early 90s that it just went to zero. I think it was 92. Yeah, 1992, they, they shut it down. And yet it is, it's already in many ways kind of getting buried. David, what do you remember about your dad and his working at Lockheed? What you'd see there on this industrial area was, I, I'm going to say hundreds of these three-wheel scooters that my dad used to drive on. And there'd be like a little place in the back, kind of like a pickup truck in these three-wheel scooters. And they'd be all over the darn place, um, you know, moving people and things from location to location. I think one thing I learned from my dad was my dad, I don't know if he was in the union at that time. He had been, or if he was in supervision, but regardless, they went on strike. So my dad was on strike, not drawing any pay, and he did not moan and groan. I saw him go out and find a job. He was digging ditches in the flood control for about two months. I remember his hands coming just, you know, bruised and such, but he just, he knew that's what he had to do. And I just, I, I absorbed that. It's just kind of interesting for me to like go into that area in that neighborhood and think of, oh, grandpa like was riding around in a scooter, you know, <laughs> but like any, any memory that you have of like a specific incident or of him, uh, you know, using his, uh, his charm <laughs> and his humor to get things done? Like, would you say that like he, that was kind of part of his, uh, what made him successful in that role? I don't think there's any question. And I, what I think back to is his retirement, people coming up to me and they open up on what this guy was like. And it, it was that easygoing, communicative, could be trusted, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So as a son, it was a, it was a great experience to hear what other people thought of my dad. Yeah, that's it. It's, and even like removed from it, from that generation, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting to me to kind of tie that visual picture to that place. Well, Matt, what are your <laughs> memories of your granddad? He's a very funny person. And that sounds like a trite sort of thing that that's the first thing that comes to my mind. But I mean, that as like a sort of a deep word of honor <laughs> for me, because it's about, I think he was very focused on making people laugh and bringing joy and uh, just kind of had a, a blue collar, honest, innate likability about him. Uh, everyone loved him. Everyone loved him. It's amazing, isn't it, how we can find a connection to home in the most unusual places, even at the worst mall in the world. I'm so grateful to Matt and his father, David, for taking some time to talk with me about their family. And I hope you'll keep your eyes open this holiday season because you never know where you might discover a connection to home. Home for the holidays I believe I missed each and every phase Come on and play one easy Let's turn on every love light in the place It's time I found myself Totally surrounded in your circles Oh, my friends Please celebrate me home Give me a number, please Celebrate me home Play me one more song 
The Chinese have a saying that I'm sure you've heard. It is better, they say, to light a candle than to curse the darkness. On the other hand, the poet Dylan Thomas says rage, rage against the dying of the light. I wish I had a coin that I could flip that had the Chinese saying on one side and Mr. Thomas is on the other so I could know when I should rage, when should I light a candle. For there are times when it's right to rage, to take a stand against injustice. And there are other times when it's right to be still and simply allow light to grow brighter within us. Both actions are essential, I think. One looks outward toward a change in society. The other looks inward toward a lightening of the burdens that we place on ourselves. Let's look at rage first. Of all the ways that we can rage against the dying of the light, I think my favorite is the protest song. So, imagine my surprise to find that the history of the Christmas carol can be traced back to pre-Christian fertility rites where villagers would run through their fields at the winter solstice, singing and screaming in order to drive off any evil spirits that might be inhabiting the space where the crops were expected to grow in the spring. More recently, though, Here's an example of a good, healthy rager that we sing this time of year. It starts innocently enough. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But that's just softening the mark for the ask. Now bring us some figgy pudding. Now bring us some figgy pudding. Now bring us some figgy pudding and bring it right here. And then the demand. We won't go until we get some. We won't go until we get some. We won't go until we get some. So bring it right now. It's a good model. And it's one that's been effective for centuries in redistributing the figgy pudding of the ruling classes to cold and hungry carolers around the globe. It's a silly example, but an apt one. For when we gather peacefully and ask for what we want, 
and stand strong until we get it, we're doing the work of raging against the dying of the light. Another less silly example is the protest song, We Shall Overcome. It skips the pleasantries and gets right to the dream. We shall overcome. We shall all be free. And then the how of making the dream a reality. We'll walk hand in hand. And then a statement of power. We are not afraid. We are not alone. And finally, a commitment to seeing the change we seek come to pass. We shall not be moved. The song closes with the why. When the rage we feel at oppression and injustice is transformed from the impotent rage of broken windows and burning buildings into the potent rage of steadfastly demanding what we want, we dramatically increase our chances of achieving lasting change. Give us what we want. Give it to us now. We won't go until we get it. Now, about the candle. It's no surprise that all of the major winter holiday traditions include candles and fire. The candles on the Hanukkah menorah symbolize the triumph of justice and freedom over oppression. The four candles on the Advent wreath are lit one by one each week as the world grows darker, culminating in the lighting of the Christ candle on Christmas Eve, which is then passed to all in attendance as an example of how, if shared, light can blanket the earth. The seven candles of the Kwanzaa Kinara are lit as a reminder that family, self-determination, responsible living, cooperation, purpose, creativity, and faith are essential components of a healthy and prosperous life. And the Yule celebration that predates all of them uses candles and great big bonfires to invite the sun to return, healthy and strong, so that we can plant and harvest again. The candle, come to think of it, is a way we symbolically rage against the dying of the light. We throw another log on the fire. We bring a tree indoors and decorate it with lights, and we decorate the public square and our private homes with lights galore. In the face of encroaching darkness, we do our best to lighten up. We sing... Bring a torch, Jeanette Isabella. All is calm, all is bright. May your days be merry and bright. We brighten each other's spirits with gifts and food and drink with songs and smiles and kisses. The candle defies and confounds the darkness, just as laughter confounds the humorless. Compassion confounds those who think only of themselves. Tolerance confounds the bigot. Community confounds the separatists. Love confounds those who hate. At this dark time, and it's only getting darker this time of year, it is right and good to celebrate the people who brighten our lives and lighten our loads. The comedians who invite us to laugh at our relationships, our politicians, our society, and ourselves. The frontline workers in hospitals and food pantries who feed our hungry and care for our sick. The people who give the best hugs. The ones who are always there to listen who love us through our failures. The ones who, through word and deed, show us 
that the best way to eliminate darkness is not to deny or to wish it away, but to light a candle. And suddenly, the world isn't quite so dark anymore. My friends, it's been a long, dark year. And December is the darkest month of them all. But with hope in our hearts and the knowledge that starting December 22nd, the world begins to naturally lighten up. Let's light a candle in our hearts. All it takes is a spark, a little fuel, and a willingness to be part of the light that drives back the darkness. For those who are sick and dying, we rage against the darkness, and we light a candle. For those we've lost, we rage against the darkness, and we light a candle. For the toxic fear that separates us one from another, we rage against the darkness, and we light a candle. For those oppressed by systems that treat them as somehow less than others, we rage against the darkness, and we light a candle. Where there is intolerance, insensitivity, and inhumanity, we rage against the darkness, and we light a candle. For all the ways, we fail to recognize ourselves in others and in the living world around us. Let's rage against the darkness and let's light a candle. We'll be right back with dinner and a movie. Now, bring me some figgy pudding. You looking for a buddy to keep you company during the holidays? Because now is a great time to adopt a pet from LA Animal Services. With several locations throughout the city, LA Animal Services has dogs and cats, of course. But they also have rabbits, hamsters, turtles, guinea pigs, chickens, and more, all looking for homes this holiday season. If you're not ready for a full-time commitment, though, consider fostering a cat or dog for a couple weeks. They'll enjoy the vacation and the change of scenery from kennel life, and you'll also be able to provide valuable information, photos, and videos of your furry house guest that can then be used to help them find a permanent home. In addition, you'll offer these pets with additional networking opportunities as you take them along with you on errands and walks around your neighborhood. And if you're lucky enough to already have a pet, LA Animal Services offers many resources and services to keep you and your pet healthy and happy, including free or low-cost spay and neuter vouchers. Or if you need medical or behavioral advice, or if you just want to understand your furry friend better, you can attend a virtual advice panel and interactive discussion via the doggy dialogue, the cat chat, or a rabbit roundtable. And if you need assistance to feed your animal companion, LA Animal Services offers the Pet Food Pantry on the second and fourth Monday of every month. Make an appointment to pick up free food for your pet. To see adoptable pets and make appointments for services, go to laanimalservices.com or call 888 452 7381. In our Dinner in a Movie segment this week, we're going to pair one of the most iconic holiday movies of all time with a dessert that, if you're like me, you've rarely, okay, you've never had. Choosing one great movie for holiday viewing is just about as difficult as you'd expect. So watch as I dodge the responsibility for my choice by mentioning that there are a lot of really great movies that you can settle in with this holiday season. The original animated The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, with the inestimable Boris Karloff narrating and the equally brilliant Chuck Jones directing. The Charlie Brown Christmas special, which delivers the Christmas message straight from the Gospel of Luke. It's a Wonderful Life was originally released in the spring of 1946, but it has rightly become a holiday classic, and it never fails to produce in me a good Holiday Cry. A Christmas Story and Elf pair well because one is a nostalgic reminiscence and the other is a more modern tale. 
Both are really funny. And there are those who insist that Die Hard is a holiday film, but I'm not one of them. There is one story, however, that continues to inspire us at the holidays over a century after it was penned. It spawned adaptations galore, from dozens of feature-length films to TV adaptations, cartoons, comic books. It's been musicalized. It's been pantomimed. The stage productions alone provide the yearly operating budget for theaters across the country and around the world. And they're all based on a very short novella about a mean old man who utterly transforms himself as he travels from the darkest night to the brightest day with the help of four yes, for spirits who show him what life was, is, and will be if he continues acting out of greed and disregard for others. It's Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's a great story, filled with endless quotable quotes and memorable characters, and it's as relevant today as it was when it was written. Choosing an adaptation to recommend was just about as difficult as choosing this story— Alastair Sim is widely regarded as the best Scrooge on film, although I really like George C. Scott in one of the TV adaptations, and Albert Finney was great in the musical adaptation Scrooge, which I saw when I was a kid. Jim Carrey got CGI'd, Mickey Mouse got a crack at it, Muppets produced a good one, and nearly every TV show ever made has done a Scrooge episode. The production I want to recommend, though, is one that was presented two years ago here in Los Angeles at the Geffen Playhouse, and it's available for online streaming through the end of the year. It's an absolutely stunning one-man show, adapted by Jefferson Mays, Susan Lyons, and Michael Arden. It's performed by Mr. Mays, with Mr. Arden directing, and it's my understanding that this production was a 10-year collaboration between the writers, director, and actor. Mr. Lyons is our narrator, and he also plays every single character in the story. It's a tour de force performance, but one that's never showy or hammy. Every moment is finely tuned to get Dickens' point across. The scary parts are properly scary. That's my greatest beef with most adaptations. They're just not scary enough. And the heartbreak is palpable, and the transformation is earned and appropriately cathartic. The production is also world-class, with a brilliant rotating stage and sound and lights and projections, all intricately layered to support and expand the story. Also, it's really faithful to the source material, so you'll get to hear all of Dickens' delicious prose over the course of its 100-minute running time. It's a pricey stream at 50 bucks, but the money will help keep one of the best mid-sized theaters in Los Angeles afloat. The Geffen has been quite nimble in adapting to the restraints placed upon it by the coronavirus. They're presenting very interesting and unusual virtual offerings that might be a model for the future of theater at home, with or without a pandemic. Also, when you factor in what you'd spend to take your family out to a night at the theater, you might realize this is a real bargain. And it's one that I cannot recommend highly enough. Now, What food should we pair with a Christmas carol? Turkey is the obvious choice, so I avoided that. What about a goose? Well, they're tough to find, and they require a lot of finesse in the kitchen. Honestly, there's food galore in a Christmas carol. And if you're inspired, I'd love to hear about any recipes you'd like to try. But I was struck by one of my favorite lines that Scrooge utters early in the piece. Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. And at the Cratchit's Christmas dinner, Dickens writes that the pudding had a smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other with a laundress's next door to that. Who wouldn't want such a smell in their own homes in the holidays? So I've decided to provide for you a recipe for figgy pudding. Now, before you tell me that the texture of pudding makes you squirm, you should know that figgy pudding is less like the pudding cups of our youth and more like a chewy, hearty banana bread. It's warm, spiced, and substantial. Plus, it has the added option to be able to be set on fire at the table. More about that later.
The recipe comes from the Food Network website, and it mixes chewy dates and dried figs with dark chocolate to make the pudding base. And then we top it with a sauce of heavy cream and brown sugar and add fresh figs and whipped cream on top. The recipe is very straightforward. Just the fruit, plus sugar, flour, eggs, butter, baking soda, and water. All the ingredients are easy enough to come by. If you can bake a cake, you can bake a figgy pudding. Now, about the fire. If you're planning to flambe the pudding at the table, just drizzle a tiny little bit of brandy or rum where the crosshatches meet and light it up. A little goes a long way here, so please, please, please be careful. Also, ideally, all of the alcohol content burns off, so there's no need to worry about kids getting hammered or your sober friends falling off the wagon. But do be sure to let them know beforehand so they can opt out. There's always a possibility that a little liquor will soak into the cake, so I'll say for a third time, just be careful how much alcohol you add. And be sure to wait until the fire's out before you add the fresh figs and the cream on top. For suggestions on substitutions and organic alternatives, we provided a mostly guilt-free version of this recipe on our website. I think you'll find this recipe to be a chewy, creamy winter delight, and the production of A Christmas Carol will startle and touch you with the epic journey of awakening to the light within that is the centerpiece of all holiday celebrations. We want to see your finished product. Upload photos of your figgy pudding to our Instagram or Facebook pages. And be sure to let us know what you think of the streaming one-man Christmas carol. Also, feel free to share your favorite holiday recipes for cookies, pies, turkey, goose, or roast beast with the lounge community. We're always eager to see what you're up to. And that's our holiday lounge. Feel free to change back into your normal footwear and return to your busy, productive lifestyle. But I do hope you'll take a little sliver of this lounge with you as you go. Here's the who did what. Our show is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. The musical arrangements and our lounge theme were created by John Ballinger. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. You heard Cal on vocals and bass, Dutch on vocals and guitar, and Bax on drums. Ray Chase and Julia McElvain performed Happy Nola Days, and many thanks to Matt Almos and his father David for sharing their stories with us. I'm Keith Farley, and we'll be back in the new year to share more songs and stories and movies and recipes, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge.